Welcome to Counter Apologetics. Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing the Leibnizian contingency argument. The Leibnizian cosmological argument is one of the cosmological arguments for the existence of God, and is probably my favorite. Here is how it goes. Premise 1. Anything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external explanation. Premise 2. The universe has an explanation for its existence, and that explanation is grounded in a necessary being. Premise 3. The universe exists. Premise 4. Therefore, the universe has an explanation of its existence. Premise 5. Therefore, the explanation of the existence of the universe is grounded in a necessary being. And the conclusion is God exists. Now, looking at this argument, we need to defend these premises for the argument to work. Starting with premise 1, we see it relies on the same reasoning behind Leibniz's principle of sufficient reason, or a restrictor version. If we start by the principle of sufficient reason and brute facts. Explanations come to an end somewhere, to quote Wittgenstein. And this is something Ozzy and I discussed a couple episodes ago. Chains of justification end. They end in a fact that either has no explanation or is self-explanatory. And I'm not sure there's a real difference there when we're talking about gods or universes. The principle of sufficient reason, or PSR, is a controversial principle stipulating that everything must have a reason, or cause, or a grounding. This is essentially the first premise of the Leibnizian contingency argument. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. Initially, the principle of sufficient reason might seem like an innocuous idea, obvious even, but I don't think it can be true. First, to accept one brute fact is to reject the PSR. A brute fact is a fact that has no explanation. I think there is at least one brute fact, so the PSR is false. The PSR itself would seem to be a brute fact. It seems to have no explanation for itself. So why should we accept the principle of sufficient reason? To quote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, several modern philosophers attempted to provide a proof for the PSR though so far these attempts have been mostly unsuccessful. End quote. So it might seem too quick and easy, but the principle of sufficient reason, since it may have no explanation for itself, might be a self-refuting principle, like there are no absolute truths, or nothing can be known. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that you could give a cause, or ground, or reason for the PSR. What's the reason for that reason? and the reason for that reason, and so on ad infinitum. This is the second major problem I see with accepting the PSR, the first premise of the contingency argument. It seems to generate an infinite regress of justifications. The chain of justification never stops, for anything, if you take the PSR seriously. Defenders of the principle of sufficient reason might push back there and argue that chains could end in a self-explained fact. A self-explained fact has an explanation, a self-caused entity has a cause, but what's the real difference between self-explanatory facts, self-caused entities, and unexplainable brute facts? Is there a meaningful distinction to be made that's not merely semantic? 
it seems like a distinction without a difference. And again, if there's one brute fact, the principle of sufficient reason is false. A few responses have been marshaled in defense of the PSR. Some opt for a pragmatic argument. The PSR is necessary to make the universe intelligible to us. We need it to make sense of the world. But the problem is pragmatic or methodological acceptance of the principle doesn't necessarily reflect its ontological status. Just because it works doesn't mean it's really true in the exact way we might think it is. We might make use of the PSR, but that doesn't mean it's actually an inviolable natural principle. Pragmatic or methodological usefulness doesn't equal a decisive ontological justification. We need something more than a pragmatic justification to accept the first premise of Leibniz's contingency argument. Another defense put forward is that rejecting the PSR would mean rejecting all of science. Alexander Pruss has argued that rejecting the PSR, quote, would undercut the practice of science, end quote. We're not talking about labeling any old thing we come across a brute fact. Yes, it would undercut science to immediately slap a brute fact label on every new phenomenon observed, but nobody is suggesting we do that, nor are we committed to doing so once we accept that there is at least one brute fact. Calling something a brute fact should be a last resort, something we only suggest after careful deliberation. The practice of science would only be undermined if we carelessly deemed phenomena brute. That would undermine science because we'd stop looking for reasons for the data we collect, but nobody is suggesting that we start labeling everything under the sun a brute fact. Accepting the existence of, for example, existence as a brute fact does not undercut science. I think everyone must accept at least one brute fact. You might not call it a brute fact, you might use different words, but it's the same idea. Theists believe facts about God are brute. Naturalists believe facts about nature are brute. Then there's the issue of whether the PSR itself is to be taken as a brute fact, which is why I suspect it's a self-refuting idea. Alexander Pruss, quoted earlier, wrote that the PSR is, quote, self-evident, obvious, intuitively clear, in no need of argumentative support, end quote. The PSR implies that there are no brute facts, and yet the PSR seems to be a brute fact, making it a self-defeating idea, like the statement, there are no absolute truths. Brute facts, things that have no further explanation, seem totally unavoidable to me, yet the PSR says they don't exist. On theism, God is a brute fact. On naturalism, nature is a brute fact. That's one of the primary responses to Leibniz's contingency argument. The universe is a brute fact. It just is. To quote Bertrand Russell, the universe is, quote, just there, and that's all. Stephen Hawking went on to echo this point in the 1980s, agreeing with Russell that the universe just is. And many believers claim to find this totally unsatisfying, and yet fail to bat an eyelash when it's pointed out that God just is in the same way. What you believe about God, I believe something similar about nature. You don't get to claim God as something which exists without explanation or which explains itself, and complain when naturalists invoke their own brute facts. To paraphrase Russell, if there can be any brute facts, it may just as well be the universe as God. But these ideas are not on equal footing. The universe has an edge over God on grounds of simplicity. For one, the universe definitely exists. 
So it's universe versus universe plus God. Why multiply entities unnecessarily to explain the same data? God is metaphysically and theoretically expensive. Nothing is gained by postulating a God, and there are considerable disadvantages to positing a maximally good God who also happens to be the God of the Bible. Go ahead and point to something we need a God to explain. I would argue you don't need God to explain anything, for one, and that the concept of God is riddled with problems. Setting those issues to one side for the moment, we can be confident that Occam's razor favors naturalism over theism. All things being equal, we should make our theories of reality as simple as possible. As Quine put it, our ontology should be like a desert, sparse, as simple as possible but not simpler. We want our models to be composed of as few elements as possible without giving up a single datum that needs explaining. But why should we care about simplicity? Why should simpler theories have an edge? One reason for accepting Occam's razor is that there are an infinite number of conceivable theories of reality that could explain the data we have. An infinite number of models could be generated that are compatible with the data. There's the data of observation on the one hand, and then there's our explanation or interpretation of those data. There will always be an infinite number of hypotheses that can account for the data we have. For example, if you have a successful explanation of the motion of the planets, I could always add an immaterial angel that doesn't do anything, riding along. Then I could build another model that has an angel and an angelic ether for angels to travel through, and so on and so forth. Occam's razor can help us choose one explanation over another. So if we have two competing models that both explain our observations, but one is simpler, in other words, it's composed of fewer entities, we should opt for the sparser model. If we reject a principle of simplicity, we have no way of resisting the infinite number of theories that are compatible with the data, but are needlessly complex and add useless entities to our ontology. What principled reason can we give to ward off those theories other than Occam's razor? will typically say, in response to premise one, that this premise, this principle of sufficient reason, as it's called, is true of everything in the universe, but they want to exempt the universe itself from the principle. The universe itself is the exception to the rule, and it doesn't need to have an explanation of its existence. Everything in the universe has an explanation of its existence, but the universe itself exists without explanation. There's nothing that's obviously unreasonable about that. What applies to every member of a group doesn't necessarily apply to the group itself. Every cat has a mother, but that doesn't mean a herd of cats has a mother. We can maintain that everything in the universe has a cause without being forced to commit to the idea that the universe itself has a cause. It's not like there's a logical problem with stipulating that some things have causes and other things do not. And I think this atheist response to the principle commits what has been aptly called the taxicab fallacy. So that when you get to the universe, you can't just say, well, the universe is the exception to the rule. 
uh, th that commits the taxicab fallacy of thinking you can just dismiss the principle of sufficient reason when you get to your explanatory ultimate. Remember, Leibniz does not exempt God from the principle of sufficient reason. He says, yes, God has an explanation of why he exists. He exists by a necessity of his own nature. So Leibniz can't be accused of arbitrarily exempting the explanatory ultimate from the principle of sufficient reason. I don't think that those who acknowledge that explanations come to an end somewhere are guilty of some informal fallacy. No one gets to opt out of admitting at least one brute fact. Craig claims to accept the principle of sufficient reason, but what is the meaningful difference between saying God exists by necessity of his own nature and God is a brute fact? For some reason, according to Craig, saying that God is just there and that's all is fundamentally different from saying the universe just is. David Hume pointed out that explaining the component parts is enough to explain the whole. The whole isn't actually greater than the sum of its parts. If it seems to be, and we're sure that we're not under an illusion, that means there are further constituents of which we're not yet aware, or the constituents of which we are aware have further properties that we've yet to fully appreciate. Once we've explained all the constituents of the universe, we've explained the universe. It makes no sense to say, you haven't explained the whole, you've only explained all the component parts. Once we've explained everything in the universe, what's left? What have we left out of our description, once we've explained all the component parts of the universe? Quote, But the whole, you say, wants a cause. I answer that the uniting of these parts into a whole is performed merely by an arbitrary act of the mind, and has no influence on the nature of things. Did I show you the particular causes of each individual in a collection of 20 particles of matter, I should think it very unreasonable should you afterwards ask me what was the cause of the whole 20. This is sufficiently explained in explaining the parts. End quote. Our explanations will come to an end somewhere. You can't just ask why over and over again and act as if it's a profound and meaningful question every time. I think we can reject the first and second premises of Leibniz's contingency argument. I reject the principle of sufficient reason because I think there must be at least one brute fact, and because the PSR is arguably self-refuting. I also don't think the universe needs an explanation for its existence, if we're defining universe in the broadest possible sense. I need to add that caveat because what has previously been called the universe may in fact only be a part of everything that exists in the same way that scientists prematurely named certain particles atoms, only to find out later that they were not in fact atoms, we may have prematurely named a part of the universe the universe. Apologists will sometimes burn a lot of fuel, arguing that the universe has an explanation, when they're not really talking about everything that exists, everything that has existed, and ever will exist. If this all-encompassing whole is not, quote, an arbitrary act of the mind, then it could be a brute fact. And to be fair, if God existed, 
God could be a brute fact, but on grounds of simplicity alone, without even touching all the problems with the notion of God, nature or some aspect of nature is a better candidate than God as the place where our explanations ultimately come to an end. That's all I have for you today. I would like to thank all my patrons who make this show possible and the Patron Hall of Fame, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, Richard Crossan, Pre Nifty, and Rory B. Murkowski. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to believe in the angelic ether anyway, you can follow us on our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.